Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The White House just called it a cruel, premeditated stunt. The lead starts right now. Immigrants being used as political pawns, critics say, in the decades-long debate over how to solve the border crisis. And now it's Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis shipping migrants late at night to Martha's Vineyard. Plus, back on track inside the negotiations that went on for 20-plus hours to avoid a rail strike that would have crippled the country's economy. But how long can the U.S. avoid threats to the supply chain? And meeting set after months of pleas, a source tells CNN, President Joe Biden will finally hear directly from the families of Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, two Americans unfairly being detained in Russia. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today in our politics lead with stark moves by two Republican governors. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott sending planes and buses full of migrants to two specific places selected, it seems, to get a reaction the liberal enclave of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, and outside Vice President Kamala Harris's official residence in Washington, D.C. Volunteers say the migrants seem to be mostly from Venezuela. You can see some of them standing outside the Naval Observatory here in the nation's capital earlier today. The immigrants were dropped off by two buses from Texas. No heads up was given to leaders of Washington, D.C. that they were coming. In addition, overnight, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis shipped two planes full of immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. The vineyard, an island off the coast of Massachusetts, is a vacation destination for many, including former President Obama, and we're told was not equipped with shelters, nor was it ready with supplies to handle this surprise influx of human beings. DeSantis and Abbott say they are taking extreme measures because they need to focus attention on the immigration crisis in the U.S., which is being ignored by leaders in Washington. Their detractors accuse them of using human beings in cheap political stunts in the name of raising their national political profiles. We start our coverage with CNN's Miguel Marquez, who is on Martha's Vineyard, where the community is scrambling to try to provide support for these migrants. Ubaldo Arcaya was in San Antonio, Texas yesterday, along with 50 other Venezuelan migrants. Today... He's in Martha's Vineyard. When you got off the plane, I asked him, what did you think of this place? Beautiful, gorgeous, he says. The people are very friendly. He says in Texas, he was promised help if he got on the plane. No idea where he was going. There were three options, he says. Washington, Utah, here in Massachusetts, whatever was available. The plane left and brought us here. It's a tactic we've seen in Texas, Arizona, and now Florida. Republican governors shipping migrants to so-called sanctuary cities and states with little to no notice. There's no low that these people will go. They'll keep going lower and lower. uh, And they're willing to use humans, children, women, families, as political pawns for their own game. It is depraved. It is evil. It is wrong. But what makes America great 
is what we see here today, which is an island community and a state in Massachusetts is coming together to support the people here. Arcaia, a 27-year-old mechanic from Venezuela, says he's been welcomed with food and new clothes here on the island. He tells us he made a difficult month-and-a-half-long journey for liberty, democracy, and the promise of America. When you step on American soil, you feel at ease that you're here and well-protected. You lose the stress of the journey we had to go through in seven countries. Very stressful across all of Central America. This parish house bustling with activity, volunteers and organizers working since yesterday to provide food, shelter, and immigration services. We've got the bodies to do right. this. The biggest problem was the uh, the short notice, right. and, uh, and that was obviously intentional. Just 20 minutes notice, says the airport manager, a deliberate move by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is taking credit for the surprise trip. Our message to them is we are not a sanctuary state, and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. But that message, not sitting well with officials here in Martha's Vineyard. We're going to come together and support whoever shows up here. And we're going to make sure that people have the food, water, and shelter that they need. You know, Ron DeSantis and Republicans might want to play political games with people's lives. I believe that's incredibly inhumane to be using women and children and families as a political pawn. Now, what's truly bizarre about the situation is that Ron DeSantis is Venezuelans and his, his dislike of the government there. What's bizarre is all of these immigrants came from Texas, and it appears only the planes were provided by Florida specifically to bring them here. And as you mentioned, within hours, those buses at the vice president's residence in D.C. But look, whatever happens here in Martha's Vineyard to say, they can handle the 50 that are here now, that they are getting on it, and they believe that if there are more planes that come, they'll be ready. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. At first, officials on Martha's Vineyard were unsure who sent the planes of these migrants, but Florida Governor DeSantis quickly took credit, saying states like Massachusetts, New York, and California will, will better facilitate the care of these individuals through their designation as sanctuary states and support for the Biden administration's open border policies. Let's bring in CNN reporter and expert of Florida politics, Steve uh, Cotorno. Um, Steve, the uh, Governor DeSantis has big political ambitions. Uh, every, every move he makes seems to be carefully calculated and thought out. What does he gain from this? You're right. He, this wasn't something that he hatched overnight. In fact, he's actually been quite publicly plotting this uh, in the public eye for, for months now. He has threatened to ship migrants to anywhere that might give Democrats heartburn. He has said Martha's Vineyard. He has even said uh, the president's home state of Delaware. So policy-wise, this is something he has consistently said for a while. Politically, this checks a lot of boxes for him. He, it, it gets his base really excited. It's an issue that they, they care about. It, it causes a lot of anguish and, and outrage among Democrats, which scores a lot of points in today's Republican Party. And, you know, it gets media coverage. And that is a formula that he has used time and time again to get at the forefront of these issues that are most animating GOP voters. So some GOP voters in Florida are Venezuelan Americans. Um, that's kind of like a growing uh, force in Florida politics, as I don't need to tell you. A lot of these migrants are Venezuelans. Um, might there be any risk of any 
uh, backfire on Governor DeSantis? Jake, it's a great question because the governor has been a hardliner on immigration issues basically since he took office, and it really hasn't hurt him too much with the Latino and Hispanic populations that make up such a large part of the voting base there. But one step back a second, this is the Venezuelan population is is huge in Florida. It's it's a large the, half of the Venezuelans that live in the United States actually live in Florida. In fact, 100,000 live in the Miami area alone. And they, many of them vote. In fact, many of them actually vote Republicans. A lot of them were Trump supporters in 2020. You know, they actually thought that he was doing a good job of standing up to Maduro, you know, the dictator who runs uh, Venezuela. So if their political calculus changes, you, know, you and I both know a lot of races in Florida are won and lost on the margins. And already we're seeing Venezuelan leaders down in Florida they are holding press conference today where they were expressing their outrage at this decision. If this moves the dial at all, it could be trouble for him. Yeah, I mean, because these are, I, I'm assuming, victims of Maduro. Right. Victims of him. All right, Steve Contora, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us uh, now to discuss Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez of Texas. Uh, Congressman, uh, Governor DeSantis and your governor, Texas Governor Abbott, sent these migrants uh, with no heads up to officials in Martha's Vineyard or D.C., no heads up to anybody who might care for them, uh, provide them with food, uh, health care. We see a lot of kids in these pictures. What's your response to, z- to this? Is this a good way to, to protest the, the country's failing immigration policies? Clearly, clearly tragic. And it's just a manifestation of DeSantis playing monkey see, monkey do with our governor. Um, and, you know, we have a handful of right wing nut job governors that are that are manifesting themselves in this way and feeding more red meat to their to their base and alienating their middle of the road Chamber of Commerce Republicans. But in state like ours, like in Texas, where we already have a massive labor shortage, we're using tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars to export people. And as in this case, as you just mentioned, these are Venezuelans who are broken, who are coming from a communist dictatorship much like the Venezuelans and Cubans in Southern Florida who are watching this and probably in disgust, regardless of how they may feel politically of what party they, they follow, this is, these people are coming from a communist dictatorship. They made it to our country and normally we, we, we take care of these people. We are good Americans that promote democracy around the world and we're shutting the door on, on others that are suffering in dictatorships as in Venezuela and Cuba and other countries around the world when we're sending this message to the world. Mm. It's, it's shameful. Governor DeSantis and Governor Abbott say that they feel compelled to do this, to, to bring attention to this issue and to call on the Biden administration and Congress to take action, to highlight the irresponsibility of sanctuary cities and sanctuary states. Uh, what's your response to that? We're talking about communist dictatorships that these people, these are Venezuelans who came from a Maduro dictatorship. Um, I think that's something they're, they're going to have trouble explaining to Cubans and, and, and Nicaraguans and, and Venezuelans in southern Florida who also fled the same type of dictatorship, maybe in different conditions. But in their heart, they know that what is happening now is wrong. And that's not uh, who America is. And we never have, have been. So this is a new radical right wing uh, within the Republican Party that is showing this new face to our country and to the world. And it's really shameful. Congress hasn't passed uh, sweeping immigration reform uh, since Reagan uh, was president. Uh, It does seem like theoretically there should be a compromise that includes humanity and also border security. What would you like to see passed? Absolutely. Um, I just filed a bill called the Safe Zone Act. 
And what, we, what the Safe Zone Act does, it creates a place on the border of Guatemala and Mexico for asylum seekers to show up at that juncture. Instead of having to make it all the way to our southern border, it would take the pressure off our border. It would remove the, the criminal element or the cartel element from uh, hijacking these, these uh, migrants. They pay five to $8,000 per head to get to my southern border. Uh, last year, we calculated they made about $5 billion. This is the only true comprehensive border plan that would bring long-term solutions, and we hope that we can get bipartisan support. Uh, this is not a, a, a show business type of bill. This is something I took the first and only bipartisan group of members of Congress to our border to see what was happening. During the Trump administration, Dems used to go down there and point the fingers at children in, in cages. Now we have Republicans going down there every week for uh, you know, political ploys to, to take photos and, and of migrants that are crossing the border and blaming Biden for it. We need to come together with a comprehensive idea of what could bring long-term solutions. Clearly, we need an immigration plan that works, but uh, the asylum system that we have right now isn't functioning uh, at, at its best, and I think we can make it safer, uh, more humane. We shouldn't have to force asylum seekers to make a 1,500-mile trek to our southern border and yeah. pay thousands of dollars to, to cartels. I've seen two uh, U.S. presidents, President Bush, also a former Texas governor, uh, and President Obama, try to get immigration reform uh, passed. Uh, and uh, Bush really tried very, very hard, uh, to, to his credit. Uh, and the problem always, at the end of the day, came down to uh, conservative House Republicans refusing to go along uh, with any compromise because they were afraid of their Republican base. Um, That's right. I thought that President Trump, there was a moment where he gave lip service to the idea of actually trying to push immigration reform, but I think he, too, was scared off of the Republican base. I think the, that's what seems to happen. Right? And, and these stunts are being done to appeal to the Republican base, but the solution's right there, uh, and, and uh, it seems like the Republican base doesn't understand that fear of them has kept the solution from happening. Right, and I think more uh, farmers and ranchers and construction companies and manufacturers and people in the hospitality business need to talk to those uh, members and those senators and say, hey, we need this reform. We need, a, we need normality. We're suffering the largest labor shortage in modern history right now. They need the jobs. We need the labor. We need to find a humane way to get this done. All right. Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez of Texas, thanks so much uh, Thank for you. your time today. Appreciate it. To another Thank crisis you. in the United States right now, crime. How that issue has ignited a midterm race that could tip balance of power in the U.S. Senate. Plus, Recession or perception from the job market to the housing market? What new numbers today reveal about the health of the U.S. economy? Stay with us. In our money lead, today President Biden is celebrating a tentative deal to avoid a nationwide rail strike, which the president says could have caused significant damage to the U.S. economy. This agreement allows us to continue to rebuild a better America with an economy that truly works for working people and their families. Today is a win, and I mean this sincerely, a win for America. So I want to thank you all for getting this done. CNN's Pete Montine is live for us outside Union Station here in Washington, D.C. Pete, tell us about this deal and what needs to happen before it becomes official. Well, this deal is big, Jake, because it essentially avoids this strike that would have brought 30 to 40 percent of all freight in the U.S. to a grinding halt. Really, when you think about it, this all came down to sick time that rail workers wanted because they say they were being punished for simply doing things like going to the doctor, even going to a funeral. In the end, 
they did get some of what they wanted. Also, a major raise, back pay from 2020, also some bonuses. want you to listen now to one of the rail union officials who is in the room hammering out this deal for 20 hours with the labor secretary and the railroads themselves. This is uh, monumental for our employees uh, or our members. Uh, they deserve uh, time off, time with their families. They deserve the ability to get medical care uh, without having to worry about any kind of uh, discipline policy or retribution. So uh, we worked hard for that. Now, this is a tentative agreement, Jake, and rail union workers still have to vote to ratify this. Now, rail union officials tell us that is likely to happen in the coming weeks, permanently avoiding a strike in the long term, Jake. And Pete, this deal involved freight railroads, but it also could have a major impact on passenger trains because Amtrak uses those rails uh, for many of its routes. Uh, Does this mean that Amtrak service is now back to normal? Amtrak still did cancel some trains as there was a lag in getting all this information out. The big news here is that they are no longer canceling so many trains in all corners of the country. Amtrak planned to cancel all long-distance trains, as well as trains on 10 different state-sponsored routes. This also would have trickled down to commuter rails in cities like Chicago. We're hearing from them that they are able to turn this around soon, and no trains will be canceled there. Amtrak says everything on its system will be back to normal tomorrow. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. Also in our Money Lead today, newly released data is painting a confusing picture of the U.S. economy. While two key figures beat expectations this morning, another one missed the mark. And mortgage rates hit their highest level in more than a decade. CNN business correspondent Rahel Salman joins us live to try to make sense of all this. Rahel, what do these numbers say about where the economy is right now? Yeah, Jake, sometimes the data seems to be pointing in different directions. On the labor front, well, the job market is still strong. We got weekly jobless claims today, which is our first look at how many Americans are filing for unemployment. 213,000, which is lower than economists were expecting, also lower than what we saw last week. So people, by and large, still have jobs. We also learned that people are still spending. We got retail sales data this morning, which showed uh, some slight increases. The consumer, I think the best way to describe it, still proving to be resilient, still holding on. We saw import prices fall, which could mean some some more good news on the inflation front down the line, where we are not seeing uh, declines. Our mortgage rates, 30-year mortgage rates are back above 6%, double where they were a year ago. And because of this, affordability remains a huge problem. And so people are sitting it out. So you're seeing a, a screeching halt in housing activity, which brings me to the last part of the economy, which is, of course, inflation. Mortgage rates have been tracking and sort of following the Fed's benchmark interest rate, which we know they've been raising this year as they try to cool spending and try to cool demand to try to bring us back in balance and lower inflation. The problem is, Jake, the Fed wants to cool spending, but if they overdo it, well, then we start to see some real damage to consumer spending. If we see some real damage to consumer spending, we start to see people lose their jobs. So that's not what we're seeing yet, but that is the risk here. So uh, the best way to describe this economy, I think, would be fragile. And and the Fed uh, meets again next week. Are we expecting any surprises with their interest rate decision? Well, most of the market, most economists are expecting three quarters of a percent. That would be the third consecutive rate hike of that magnitude, which is quite massive. But you're also starting to hear some, some prominent economists actually say the Fed should actually go for a full percentage point. I think we're still looking at three quarters of a percent, but it is still 
a pretty massive rate hike, Jake. All right, Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Coming up next, what we're learning about the president's meeting set with the families of Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner and what this might say about any efforts by the U.S. government to bring those American detainees home. Stay with us. Topping our world lead today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is calling upon the United States, Germany, Italy, France, and Israel to provide them with air defense systems. This comes in the wake of a critical sweep of victories on the battlefield for Ukraine against Russia. And now Ukrainian officials say they're concerned that Moscow will retaliate with even more airstrikes on civilians and civilian infrastructure. CNN senior international correspondent Ben Wiedemann joins us now live from Kiev. Ben, why is Zelensky's request so critical in this moment, do you think? Well, this is a critical moment because the uh, Russians have suffered such a massive defeat in the Kharkiv area, losing 8,000 square kilometers, uh, that their only means of retaliation at the moment is to indiscriminately, uh, it seems, to hit civilian infrastructure. We've seen it on a water reservoir. They caused some flooding, causing the residents to have to flee to dry, higher ground. Uh, We've seen it in Kharkiv just a few days ago, uh, where the Russians struck the power system. That city, uh, the second largest in Ukraine, was without power for quite uh, some time. And uh, so this is why we heard this urgent appeal from the Ukrainian president today during a press conference. Uh, and what he made the point that uh, he has not received any sort of positive response uh, from any of the countries so far for this urgent request. Jake? What are you learning uh, about what the Russians left behind when they fled recently in, in the, that area that the Ukrainians liberated in northeast Ukraine? Well, in addition to massive destruction and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of military hardware, we are learning that much like what happened when the Russians pulled out of the area around the Ukrainian capital, uh, that there are disturbing stories of potential mass graves. Now, you'll recall uh, when the Russians pulled out in April from around uh, Kiev, they left the suburb of Bucha, where 458 bodies were found. 419 of them uh, showed signs of uh, either execution, beating to death, or torture. Now, we're hearing already uh, from the head of police in the Kharkiv region uh, that they have located what appears to be a grave that holds more than 440 bodies. And we're talking about just the first few days after the Ukrainians have been able to take control of that area. Now, much of the area is still potentially dangerous with mines uh, and booby traps. So we're only just beginning to learn uh, what the Russians Uh, have left behind. Now, it's important to note that, for instance, uh, some of the cities that have been taken by the Russians, for instance, we were in Severodonetsk, that's now under Russian occupation. And even before that, the local authorities were overwhelmed with the number of bodies that they simply weren't able to bury as a result of the shelling. So we don't know the cause of death of this one site where the police say they found more than 440 bodies. But uh, certainly it appears that we may see something of a repeat of the atrocities that were uncovered in Bucha. Mm. Jake? Ben Wiedemann reporting in Kiev. Thanks so much.
After months of public pleas from the families of Americans detained in Russia, Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan's loved ones will finally get an in-person meeting with President Biden. Let's bring in Chief White House Correspondent Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, why now? Why is President Biden agreeing to this now? now? Well, Jake, the White House says one of the family members was already going to be in town, and so President Biden wanted to meet with both of them on the same day. Obviously, this is something very much that the families of Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner have wanted for some time. They have written letters to the White House. They have met with other officials. They've spoken with President Biden on the phone. But now actually getting an audience with the president in person is certainly something they want so they can make their case of why, obviously, they want their loved ones to come home and get an update on those efforts. But, Jake, when it comes to whether or not there are going to be any major changes on the efforts so far to get them home, this is what the White House said earlier. Well, I would love to say that the purpose of this meeting is to inform the families that uh, the Russians have accepted our offer and, and we are bringing their loved ones home. That is not what we're, we're, we're seeing in these negotiations uh, at this time. Uh, look, as we have said, the Russians should accept uh, our offer. They should accept our offer today. And as CNN has reported, that's an offer that the United States made to Russia to exchange a, a Russian who is detained in exchange for some of the U.S. Uh, citizens that are being held abroad, Jake. But, of course, that is not something that the Russians have really engaged with the White House on. It's caused a lot of frustration internally. So that means there's no going to be any big updates tomorrow. But the White House said it was really just important for President Biden to meet with these families face to face to let them know that this is still an issue that he is working on and he does still want to bring their loved ones home. And, Caitlin, this upcoming meeting comes right after prominent hostage negotiator in the past, former U.S. Ambassador and Governor Bill Richardson, traveled to Moscow. Um, John Kirby, a spokesman for the National Security Council, the White House was on the lead yesterday. He told us the White House didn't condone this visit and that any Americans in Russia should leave, including Richardson. Does Biden's meeting, do you think, have anything to do with Richardson's trip? Well, the White House is basically saying to Bill Richardson, thanks, but no thanks. Obviously, Jake, as you know, he has a history in helping with these kinds of negotiations for Americans who are wrongfully detained abroad. But the White House is saying it really had to do more with the scheduling of these families, that one was going to be in town. They wanted to make sure they met with both of them. But when it comes to Bill Richardson, the White House has been saying, you know, he is a private citizen. He does not speak on behalf of the United States government. And also, as you know, the State Department has a travel advisory in place warning Americans Americans not to travel to Russia at this time. That is including Bill Richardson, who, of course, recently did, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thanks so much. Coming up, a discovery reported first on CNN. Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is complying with a federal subpoena. What sources tell us he handed over to Justice Department investigators, plus what he held back. Stay with us. We're back with our politics lead in a story first reported by CNN. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has complied with his subpoena from the Justice Department as part of its investigation into the events on and around January 6th and any potential criminal activity. As CNN's Sarah Murray reports for us now, Meadows is now the highest-ranking Trump official known to have responded to a subpoena in this federal investigation. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. This is about Donald Trump and about actually going after him once again. Handing over information to the Justice Department that could shed light on his dealings in the Trump White House. Sources telling CNN he complied with a subpoena, the highest-ranking Trump official known to do so in the federal investigation that's extended beyond the U.S. Capitol attack to examine various efforts to overturn the election. 
To meet the obligations of the previously unreported subpoena, Meadows handed over the same materials he provided the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. There's no doubt that some of the stuff we found has really set off the Justice Committee into these paths. That document dumped the committee last year, including thousands of text messages and emails, like Fox News anchor Sean Hannity. Give it up for Mr. Donald Trump. Pleading for Meadows to ask Trump to call off the rioters January 6th. Can he make a statement, Hannity said? Ask people to peacefully leave the Capitol. And texts from GOP lawmakers, like this one from Jim Jordan to Meadows, saying, On January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as president of the Senate, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all. Meadows responding, I have pushed for this. While Meadows withheld hundreds of messages citing executive privilege, it's unclear if Meadows will give DOJ more. That's the big question. Will he cooperate? He was the intermediary uh, for Trump with the outside world in a lot of respects. So obviously he's very valuable to prosecutors if they're really looking at Trump. One of Meadows' top White House deputies, Ben Williamson, also getting subpoenaed for records and testimony, a source tells CNN. Both Williamson and an attorney for Meadows declined to comment. Even as DOJ fires off subpoenas to dozens in Trump's orbit, the former president downplaying the probe into efforts to overturn the election. Falsely claiming plots to put forward fake slates of electors happen all the time. I wasn't involved with alternate slates, but I can tell you many people have been for many, many years doing alternate slates. Trump insisting he played no role in that, despite this testimony from the RNC chair during a House Select Committee hearing. What did the president say when he called you? Essentially, he turned the call over to Mr. Eastman, who then proceeded to talk about the importance of the RNC helping the campaign gather these contingent electors in case any of the legal challenges um, that were ongoing changed the result of any of the dates. Even with DOJ scrutinizing efforts to challenge the 2020 election and Trump's handling of classified materials, the former president still believes he'll escape indictment. I can't imagine being indicted. I've done nothing wrong. Now, when it comes to that investigation into the former president holding on to these potentially classified documents, Jake, we are still waiting for the judge to weigh in on a number of important issues, who the special master is going to be, if she's going to let the Justice Department's probe of the, cl- the documents marked classified continue. And of course, we're waiting on that DOJ appeal. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Excellent. As always, 75 days in jail. That is the sentence handed down by a federal judge today for the Trump supporter who was photographed wearing a Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt inside the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Robert Packer pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor trespassing charge for his actions during the insurrection. That sentence is steep compared to other rioters who have pleaded guilty to the same misdemeanor charge and were not accused of violence. But the judge says that he factored in Packer's lengthy criminal history when deciding the sentence. By the way, just in case you were thinking, don't judge a book by its cover, underneath Packer's Nazi sweatshirt, he was wearing a Nazi T-shirt. The January 6th committee is asking for thousands of more emails from Trump lawyer John Eastman. Eastman is the man who came up with the far-fetched, unconstitutional, false theory that then-Vice President Mike Pence could block Congress's certification of Joe Biden's election win. The House Select Committee told a federal judge it needs another 3,200 pages of Eastman's emails so it can complete its report on the events around January 6th by the end of this year. Earlier, I spoke with committee member Congresswoman Liz Cheney for a new CNN documentary that's airing this Sunday. I asked Cheney about another part of their investigation, the role 
that violent far-right militias played in the Capitol attack and possible communications between those militias and members of the Trump orbit. The Justice Department has indicted several members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, these far-right militias, for seditious conspiracy. We understand that they were inspired and incited by Trump and they thought that they were doing what he wanted. But there seemed to be some missing pieces. And I, I know that some of that's because Flynn took the fifth, pleaded the fifth. Stone won't testify. Mark Meadows won't testify. Dan Scavino won't testify. I mean, the people who have this information won't, won't give it to the American people. What's there? What can we expect to learn more about the direct ties between these Oath Keepers and Proud Boy, far-right, seditious conspiracists, and the Trump people? Those individuals that you've mentioned are people that um, uh, have... Uh, likely have critically important information. Uh, and, uh, and I think that, you know, again, the Justice Department has the ability to get that information uh, in ways that, that uh, as a committee, we may not. You know, Donald Trump, I think it was in the first debate, he told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, um, repeatedly refused to condemn them, has since January 6th been very clear about saying that, you know, he thinks that the country owes an apology to those um, who have been indicted, uh, those who, some of whom have been convicted, uh, some have pled guilty to seditious conspiracy. And when we're, you know, at a moment in our nation's history where, you know, we sort of let that go so lightly, you know, it's seditious conspiracy. Uh, this was an effort to use violence to overthrow uh, the government. Congresswoman Cheney will be one of many people part of the CNN special report this weekend, along with key witnesses from the January 6th committee's investigation. Catch American Coup this Sunday night at 9 Eastern, only here on CNN. The increase in threats to law enforcement that a lawmaker today described as stunning. That story next. In our national lead, gun violence and crime... That's what a majority of Wisconsin voters are very concerned about, according to a recent Marquette University poll. Republicans are very much on offense when it comes to the issue of crime, trying to put Democrats on the defensive. And now it's becoming a key backdrop for the Senate race in Wisconsin between incumbent Republican Senator Ron Johnson and his Democratic opponent, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. CNN's Omar Jimenez now takes a closer look at how the defund the police strategy is playing out in this race. I'll make sure our police have the resources and training they need to keep our community safe. It's going to reallocate money away from the police department. In the dead-even Wisconsin Senate race, incumbent Republican Ron Johnson and Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes are engaged in a fierce debate over public safety. Dangerously liberal on crime. Our folks statewide are extremely motivated. Brian Schimming is a conservative political strategist in Wisconsin. There's a lot of people concerned about their personal safety. It's not just a core city problem. Uh, It's on a much larger scale, the awareness of it. Wisconsin did see a more than 70% jump in homicides from 2019 to 2021, like many states did, red and blue, driven by a number of factors, including the COVID-19 pandemic. In August, Republicans nationwide spent $11 million on ads about crime, but $25 million on ads about inflation. Then, in the first two weeks of September, $9 million on inflation, but also now $9 million on crime. And in Wisconsin, jumping on comments made by Lieutenant Governor Barnes weeks after the murder 
of George Floyd in 2020. We need to invest more in neighborhood services and programming. Where will that money come from? Well, it can come from overbloated uh, budgets and police departments. But he's making clear now that's not what he's running on. They're claiming I want to defund the police and abolish ICE. That's a lie. While a statewide poll shows crime is a top issue, it still ranks behind inflation when it comes to voter concerns. It also shows Johnson is supported by 97 percent of Republicans polled and Barnes by 96 percent of Democrats. We're talking about less than 200,000 voters who are genuinely torn right now about what they're going to do. And does that make it difficult to strategize? Crime and public safety issue is a base motivator for Republicans. But I don't think crime or public safety is going to be the issue that ultimately determines where those 150 to 200,000 swing voters land. Tom Otto is one of those swing voters, voting Trump and Ron Johnson in 2016, Barnes and Democratic Governor Tony Evers in 2018, then Biden in 2020. I usually don't make my decision until I'm standing in line getting ready to vote. While he mentioned crime as a concern, inflation came to mind first. People, don't, I don't think, realize how bad it is. Yeah, you come to a farmer's market and it looks wonderful, but... How many people can afford it? Democrats in this swing county are hopeful for a pickup and worry about the alternative. Do you feel optimistic heading into this election? No. Fear. In a deeply polarized state like Wisconsin, both parties are counting on their messaging to persuade voters in the middle and motivate their bases to turn out. One thing in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson has shown that when he speaks directly to the people, in his television advertising, he wins them over. These, these crime attacks on Barnes, they might work among Republicans, but I don't see them being a game changer to that middle part of the electorate who this is ultimately gonna come down. Now, even still, the Barnes campaign today announced a coalition of law enforcement officers from across the state who are endorsing Barnes. Another issue we heard from voters on Social Security. A majority of voters here in this state are over 50 years old. And Ron Johnson has floated changing Medicare and Social Security from mandatory to discretionary funding to be determined annually. That plus inflation, education and so much more are all going to be considered by these critical swing voters, of course, as we get ever closer to November 8th. All right, Omar Jimenez in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks so much. Coming up, what the president of China told the president of Russia in a face-to-face meeting today that has the world's attention. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, an Iowa teenager who killed her alleged rapist after being trafficked is now ordered to pay his family $150,000. Is this justice? Plus, the severed head of an African tribal chief and a 500-carat clear-cut diamond from a South African mine. The Queen's death bringing some of the monarchy's dark past back into focus. And leading this hour in Ukraine, where the battle lines are constantly shifting, a Ukrainian official says more settlements around the strategic southern city of Kherson have been liberated as Russia responds. Today, Russia bombed a dam in Kraveri which unleashed a deluge of water into nearby villages and forced people to evacuate in what a city official calls, quote, another terrorist act by Russia. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh got rare access to the newest, latest front lines, now closer than ever to Putin's doorstep. And we want to warn viewers, some of the images we're about to bring you, you might find disturbing. 
the darkness is breaking quite suddenly up here, and the road to Russia's border with Ukraine strewn with what it left behind in its panic, including its own. Two Russian soldiers shot dead in fighting about five days ago, yet another sign the Kremlin doesn't care what or who it leaves behind. This is Vovchansk, the closest town to Russia that Ukraine has taken back, and whose vital railways began the supply chain for most of Moscow's war. The Russians, everyone says, just packed up and vanished a few days ago. They've always been so close, so part of life here. Any joy is not universal. They were not very good, says Andre. They didn't shoot anyone, though. The hardest was to see their checkpoints and their Z signs and feel hatred growing in my heart, says Tatiana. They can drink their oil and have their gold and diamonds for dessert, but just leave us alone here. Nastya is sailing ships, she says. Ukraine has been at war all the eight years she's known. I think it'll be better without them, she says. It was uncomfortable having them here. Her parents nearby say fear meant they slept in their clothes all the six months. It's kind of strange here to see how almost unaffected so much of this town has been and how life seems to have slipped comfortably back into normal when the Russians just picked up and left. And it gives you a feeling of how normality must still reign just a matter of six kilometres away across the border in Russia. But normal is never coming back, particularly to here, the borderline itself. Russia retreated back over it, but must now live with the hatred it has stirred. The fact that Ukrainian forces are able to push right up to here, the beginning of the border buffer zone with Russia. Russia is just a matter of kilometres in that direction. Is yet another calamity Moscow has imposed upon itself? Its opponent in this war that it's struggling so deeply to defeat is now so close to Russia's own towns and cities. A moment long coming, says local soldier Anton. How do you feel walking along the Ukraine-Russian border? Some people have waited this for eight years, he says. It is the start of our victory. Across the once sleepy fields here, lives and harvests stalled, wilting. Yet another year will come. Jake, the abiding impression really from seeing areas reclaimed by the Ukrainians is just the vacuum, frankly, that is left when Russia disappears. Life almost sliding back to normal six months ago, particularly in those areas. And two, it's startling to hear from Ukrainian officials their suggestion that some of the units that fled the area around Kharkiv, in fact, have been so heavily injured or damaged, they've entirely been disbanded. Uh, now, today, uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky appearing publicly, seemingly unscathed uh, from the car crash he was involved in yesterday, has begun talking about uh, the discovery of mass graves in the town of Izum south of where I'm standing, one of the key logistical points down from Vovchansk that you saw there uh, in that report. More grim discoveries as Ukraine continues to press forward, it hopes, uh, in its southern counteroffensive as well, Jake. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much. This all comes, of course, as two major adversaries of the West meet face-to-face President Xi of China and President Putin of Russia, promising to work together and support one another, as CNN's Ivan Watson reports This is the first time the two strongmen have met in person since the start of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And a lot has changed for both of them. 
<clears throat> Two leaders united by their dislike of the U.S. Xi Jinping making his first trip outside of COVID lockdown China in more than two years. Face to face with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, who quickly addresses the elephant in the room. We highly appreciate the balanced position of our Chinese friends in connection with the Ukrainian crisis. We understand your questions and concerns in this regard. Questions and concerns about Russia's deadly war in Ukraine, a shift in tone from the last time these two men met. At the start of the Beijing Winter Olympics in February, Xi and Putin announced a friendship with no limits and called for a new world order not dominated by Washington. But only weeks later, Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, and it has not gone according to plan. Russia's military battered, its economy increasingly isolated. Putin now needs China more than ever. But in his public comments, the Chinese leader made no mention of Ukraine. The White House argues when it comes to this war, Chinese friendship does have limits. We haven't seen the Chinese do anything overtly to support the effort by Mr. Putin inside Ukraine. Clearly, they haven't publicly uh, condemned it. I think the Chinese, as they watch what's going on here, they recognize um, how isolated Moscow is from the rest of the international community. They recognize the economic costs and consequences that this war is having on the, the Russian economy. Thanks in large part to the ongoing COVID lockdowns of entire Chinese cities, the Chinese economy is also taking a beating something she can't afford to ignore as he prepares to grant himself a third term in office. The Chinese and Russian navies are conducting joint patrols in the Pacific Ocean, but these types of shows of force have been challenged by the fierce resistance displayed by a much smaller military fighting on the battlefields of Ukraine. When it comes to the Ukrainian war, uh, Jake, Chinese friendship with no limits, well, it basically amounts to Beijing accusing the U.S. and NATO of provoking Russia, forcing it to invade Ukraine. But the kind of rhetoric ends there. China's also provided an economic lifeline to Russia uh, by buying up record amounts of discounted Russian oil and coal. But you got to wonder, the Russian military setbacks on the battlefield, the scenes we've seen over and over again of Ukrainian farmers towing captured Russian tanks must have diminished uh, the image of Putin in the eyes of his close friend, Xi Jinping. All Jake. right. Ivan Watson reporting for Hong Kong for us. Thanks so much. Joining us live to discuss Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, who serves as a ranking uh, Republican on the House Intelligence uh, Committee. Congressman, thanks so much for being here. So let's start with this meeting between Chinese President Xi and Russian President uh, Putin today. How significant do you think it is uh, Putin's acknowledgement that Beijing had questions and concerns about the war in Ukraine? Well, it's very significant. But, you know, this meeting is a far cry from the meeting that they had in February where they declared no limits, because apparently there were limits because China offered no military assistance uh, to Putin or Russia during their incursion into Ukraine. But also, Putin stands with Xi uh, much diminished. Uh, when he first stood there, even the United States thought that he would go easily into Ukraine. Uh, he did not. Uh, he, that complicates things for President Xi as he looks to what he might want to accomplish militarily with Taiwan. And also, 
Putin rallied the entire world around their uh, military incursion, which of course makes it more difficult for China to then undertake a similar incursion toward Taiwan. And the other aspect of this is that you have the reports of the, just the atrocities that are occurring in yeah. Ukraine. It really shows that, that Russia, the brutality of what they're doing, and certainly that doesn't play well anywhere. Yeah, and, and we're, we're learning more about these atrocities as the Ukrainians uh, recapture territory. Um, the U.S. government has been pretty careful not to call uh, this new part of the war where Ukraine is recapturing territory. Uh, they're not calling it a turning point in the war. They're not calling it a critical moment that will determine the outcome. Here's, here's a quote from a U.S. defense official, quote, it's more important than ever that we don't appear to be spiking the ball. Uh, what do you think? Is that a valid concern? Well, it's always a concern whenever there are advances on the part of Ukraine and that Russia has options. And we don't know what options that they might deploy. And certainly that's of a concern. But one thing that we do know is Ukraine is making advances. Russia is, is losing territory. This is significant and it's real. Uh, it certainly has put Russia in a disadvantaged position. It certainly has shown uh, that their military capability is not what uh, they had believed in, in that region. But the other thing, it has put off their ability to have referendum in the area and then claim that they have annexed that territory. Holding off those plans really sets back Putin's uh, agenda. And sources tell CNN the U.S. is still not likely to provide Ukrainian forces with longer-range missile systems, which Ukraine has been requesting for months. CNN has been told that, that the Biden administration still believes providing those systems would be seen by Moscow as an escalation and would result in a retaliatory step by Moscow. Do you agree with that reasoning? I think this administration has been very cautious in, in what they have done, taking very, very small steps because they've been worried about provoking Russia. But in this, you know, what Russia has already done is provocative. And, and the, the atrocities that are occurring, their open threats uh, to Poland, Romania, to the uh, Balkans, the Baltics themselves, um, all of that area, I think, is a grave concern. And I think that we need to be certainly supporting Ukraine with everything we can give them. So you think they've been too cautious? Is that what you're suggesting? They, well, they've been slow on the uptick. The Congress has been leading in on this, both on passing legislation for uh, providing lethal aid and in funding lethal aid. But also, it's been slow to get in. I mean, you were reporting that certainly in the beginning. Sure. Um, but I think at this point, uh, we're, we really need to see a win by Ukraine, and they're close. So what would you say to somebody from the Biden administration who says, hey, look at these, you were just acknowledging the Ukrainian victories. That didn't just happen. That happened because the West, led by President Biden in the United States, has been giving all sorts of aid, weapon systems, probably a lot of stuff we don't know about, that you know about, but you can't tell me. Well, what we've seen every time we've increased the capabilities and the lethal aid that we've given to the Ukrainians, they have stepped up, been able to deploy those capabilities, and they've won ground. Um, that's what's exciting, is that we're actually seeing successes, uh, and we hope those successes continue, and we certainly think uh, you know, President Zelensky's leadership uh, in rallying that nation and the military capabilities that we're watching being deployed are impressive. Um, CNN's been told that uh, former U.N. Ambassador and New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson uh, met with leaders of Russia in Moscow this week. Uh, he does, of course, as you know, historically provide uh, help uh, to families of hostages and detainees, and there are at least two Americans being held a prisoner in Russia. But I want you to listen to what White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told me uh, yesterday about Richardson going there. Our message is that private citizens uh, should not be in Moscow uh, at all right now, uh, and that private citizens uh, cannot negotiate on behalf of the United States government. We share Mr. Richardson's desire to see Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan home with their families, and we're working very, very hard at doing that through government channels. That's the appropriate way to do that, uh, and, those, and those efforts are ongoing. 
So is Bill Richardson freelancing? And, and uh, what do you think? Should he leave Russia? Well, I wouldn't know to what extent that he is you know, working with the administration through back channels or, or not. But I will tell you this. You know, there certainly are gra- grave concerns as to what the administration might be willing to get up in any of these negotiations. We, we, we certainly want you know, what we would consider to be hostages free. We certainly want Americans to come home. And I think certainly everybody is very supportive of the administration in, in those negotiations. But we do have to be very concerned as to what we give in exchange. Uh, and that, that's something will be, be born uh, yet to be seen. Do you, do you have concerns about the, the Russian arms dealer in a U.S. prison who's, whose name has been floated as a possible trade? Absolutely. You don't think he should be let go? Well, I, 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 no. And, and, I, and I think that, that when you, you start to signal also your willingness to give things that, that we should not, I, Russia also ups the ante. They never accept any level of, of concession as, uh, as goodwill. They, can, they receive it as a, a walk back. All right. Very interesting. Uh, Congressman Mike Turner, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, an inside look at what it took to avoid a crippling freight rail strike, plus new reports about then-President Trump calling up one country's king and offering him a piece of land that was not Mr. Trump's to give. Stay with us. We're back with our money lead, a strike that could have had disastrous economic consequences for the United States economy has thankfully been avoided, at least for now, The White House today, President Biden celebrated the tentative deal between freight railroad companies and unions representing rail workers. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, this took weeks of intense negotiations and the direct involvement of the White House to get things back on track. A big win and a big relief for the White House. This is a great deal for both sides, in my view. President Biden announcing a deal between unions and railroad carriers, averting a strike that could have caused an economic catastrophe. They're really the backbone of the economy. I mean, literally the backbone of the economy. The negotiations stretching for nearly 20 hours inside the Labor Department, with President Biden himself dialing in after the 12-hour mark, and a final deal clenched around 2.30 in the morning. They feel good. These guys did. By the way, they're still standing. They should be home with bed. <laughs> 20 straight hours. The president bringing the negotiators and Labor Secretary Marty Walsh into the Oval Office to hail the agreement as a win for both workers and the companies. It's just critical, critical. They're keeping the economy moving. We've got a way to go. But I want to thank them all, business and labor. The deal meeting the union's main demand to give workers the ability to take days off for sick leave or medical emergencies and in a win for the companies saying workers will have to take unpaid leave to do so. The agreement coming after weeks of intense efforts by the White House, who feared that a strike would paralyze critical elements of the economy and potentially exacerbate inflation. He pushed them once again to recognize the harm that would hit families, farmers, businesses, and entire uh, communities if there was a shutdown. And Jake, all of this was a pretty delicate dance for President Biden, who has touted himself as the most pro-union president to ever hold office, but of course did not publicly take a side here because what he really wanted was an agreement between these two sides to avert those economic consequences. Now, Jake, they got this agreement. It's up to the workers to ratify it. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. What made a Republican Senate candidate suddenly go from being an election liar to at least publicly claiming he accepts reality about who won the White House in 2020? Stay with us.
In our politics lead today, campaigning for Pennsylvania governor yesterday, Republican nominee Doug Mastriano, a full-throated spreader of Donald Trump's election lies, attacked his rival, Democratic Attorney General Josh Shapiro, because of Shapiro's background. He grew up in a privileged neighborhood, attended one of the most privileged schools in the nation as a young man, not college, I'm talking about as a kid, sending his four kids to the same privileged, exclusive elite school. We talk about him having disdain for people like us. I happen to know a little bit about the privileged school that Mr. Mastriano is attacking because I went there too. I was four years ahead of Attorney General Josh Shapiro. It was then called Akiba Hebrew Academy. It's a private Jewish parochial school. And I suppose in that sense it is privileged, but I do not know many people who would describe it the way that Mr. Mastriano did. More than 60% of the student body is currently on some form of tuition assistance, the school tells me, which was my experience back when I went there in the 1980s. A lot of kids got financial aid, including a lot of kids who, with their parents, had escaped anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union and were trying to build better lives for themselves in the Philadelphia area. I don't think I've ever heard Mr. Mastriano describe any other Pennsylvania parochial schools in that way. Elite, exclusive, privileged, full of disdain for fellow Americans. Philadelphia has a ton of fancy prep schools, but Akiba Hebrew Academy was not one of them. Uh, The Catholic school down the street seemed more similar to our school. The kids of people, some of them wealthy, some middle class, some more humble. Many of them from families where both parents worked from all over the area, New Jersey, Delaware, Philly, Pennsylvania, wanting their kids to get an education that included faith and ethics and morals, is that, is that bad? Or is it only bad when those parochial schools aren't Christian? Well, we reached out and asked to speak to Mr. Mastriano today on our show. We did not get a response. I, I have questions for him, though, about his attack on this Jewish school, because Mr. Mastriano also has close ties with Gab, the far-right social media platform where Nazi venom is regularly spewed. Gab, you might recall, is where the Tree of Life synagogue mass murderer was sharing his plans and his sick bigotry right before he carried out the deadliest act of anti-Semitic violence in the history of the United States, right on the other side of Pennsylvania. Mastriano has close ties with openly, proudly anti-Semitic Gab founder Andrew Torba, who was paid for consulting services by the Mastriano campaign. Torba regularly attacks Jews. He calls Josh Shapiro the Antichrist. We should note that after some Jewish Republicans a few months ago criticized Mastriano for this relationship, Mastriano issued a rather rote paper statement criticizing anti-Semitism in all its forms. And then yesterday he attacked Josh Shapiro's Jewish school and his kids' Jewish school. I should also note that contrary to what Mr. Mastriano suggested, the Jewish values taught there did not teach disdain In my experience, they taught community and charity and respect for all faiths and nationalities, races, creeds, and colors, love of the United States, love for our fellow Americans. So I'm not sure what Mr. Mastriano means when he refers to people like Josh Shapiro having disdain for people like us. The only disdain I ever felt there was for anti-Semites. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us now live. Jeff, Doug Mastriano's relationship with Gab's founder plays into larger 
concerns of anti-Semitism in this race. Tell us about that. Look, Jake, the Pennsylvania governor's race is very important to the Republican Governors Association and Republicans writ large. That is why they have been worried about Doug Mastriano. That is why many of the establishment Republican leaders here in Washington and beyond did not support him in the primary. But look, he is the nominee. But yes, there have been concerns hanging over this race, as you said, for the last several months about his association with anti-Semitic groups. No question about it. The Republican Jewish Coalition, a very uh, prominent organization here in Washington with donors across the country, uh, was very explicit about this earlier this uh, summer, calling out Doug Mastriano to say more about his uh, ties to anti-Semitism. Uh, and uh, Doug Mastriano did uh, put out a statement at that time. But look, this is still hanging over this race without question. Now there is a new ad that's been uh, introduced in this campaign by Josh Shapiro, of course, the Democratic attorney general running for governor. He is uh, pointing out that Doug Mastriano uh, once uh, was pictured in a Confederate uh, Army uniform uh, when he was an instructor at the Army War College. I think we have a picture of that here that we can show. And he was the only one on the faculty here that decided to use the Confederate uh, uniform here in his uh, picture. So that has been now turned into a digital ad. So yes, this is all hanging over the race here. And it's a race that at this point, uh, Josh Shapiro is leading. A new CBS News poll shows that he is uh, leading Mastriano by 55 to 44 percent there. So uh, eight weeks before the election, this is the state of the uh, gubernatorial campaign, at least in Pennsylvania, Jake. Yeah. In addition to being losers and traitors, we should note that the Confederates, um, they, Pennsylvania was not on the side of the Confederates. So we, <laughs> no. we, were, we were on the winning side. Uh, Democrat John Fetterman, uh, the lieutenant governor, he's finally agreed to to a debate following a wave of criticism and, of course, uh, his stroke. What do we know about that? Look, he has agreed to a debate uh, that's uh, scheduled now tentatively for October 25th, two weeks before the election, and he's asked for closed captioning to be used at the debate. Why? He still is having auditory issues, his campaign says, uh, having a hard time hearing and processing some things because of that stroke he had several months ago. So the, the Oz campaign, Mehmet Oz campaign, has agreed to the closed captioning as long as the moderator uh, announces and explains it to the audience in advance. We'll see if this debate actually happens. As in many states across the country, there's been a debate over debates. But here in Pennsylvania, it's been different because it's a it's a speaking to a Fetterman's health issues. But as of now, at least, uh, there uh, should be one debate just uh, shortly before the election. Of course, by then, many early voting uh, periods already underway. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Let's discuss. Gloria, let me start with you. There are we should note legitimate questions about that, uh, about uh, John Fetterman's health. He had that strike. We obviously, once again, I want to note. We all wish him the best. We all wish him a speedy recovery. He has agreed uh, to a single debate with Oz just before the election, following weeks of of criticism. Is that enough? Uh, Might voters regard one debate as as insufficient? Well, I I think the more debates, the merrier. And I think that this is late. October 25th, you have voting already started. And we don't know that Oz is going to agree with this. They could go back and forth and back and forth over this forever. Um, And I think that that Fetterman at the outset was not completely forthcoming about his health issues. And I think that because of that, that has, that has dogged him. And I think he would benefit from a debate. I think he's trying to be forthcoming now and saying, look, I need closed captioning. I have auditory processing issues and stay with me on this. I'm getting better every day. And right. people, people applaud that. So I would say that the people of Pennsylvania should hear from candidates as much as they possibly can, particularly earlier on 
before voting has already started. So you're a former Republican congressman uh, from the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Oz is sharpening attacks against Fetterman on this health issue, not just about the lack of transparency early on, uh, but also just saying that uh, whatever health issues he's dealing with might keep him from doing his jobs job as a senator. It, too much, do you think? Is there a risk there? Well, there is a risk, but I think it's a fair, it's a fair criticism. I do think that uh, John Fetterman, he has an obligation to do three debates, in my view. One in the Philadelphia market, one in the Pittsburgh media market, and one in the central Pennsylvania market, Harrisburg. They have to do this. Uh, you know, I just spoke earlier today with my good friend Mark Kirk, a senator from Illinois who suffered a massive stroke sure. in 2012, and it took him about a year to come back to work. And he did two debates with Tammy Duckworth as an incumbent. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure it wasn't easy for him. He lost that race. But I think, uh, as Gloria pointed out, that the Fetterman campaign and has not been very forthcoming. They have not been transparent. And many people believe that his health condition is much worse than they have represented up to this point. So I think that the criticisms are fair by Dr. Ross. What do you think, Ashley? I think that they should do a debate. It would be great to have more than one. And it is unfortunate to have the first one being after people have started to vote. I will also say, though, is that people can recover from strokes. And having one of the requests that the Fetterman campaign asked for was uh, closed captioning because of some auditory processing. That is a reasonable accommodation, which we want people with disabilities to be able to have access to hold different jobs as long as they're qualified. And I think that Oz should agree to this and they should get this done as soon as possible. And I was just speaking to the Oz campaign right before we got on air. And the latest volley in this is that they are still pushing for a 90 minute debate. That is one of the disputes. The Oz campaign, because of the closed captioning, says that instead of 60 minutes, they want 90 minutes. So the ball is now back into the Fetterman campaign's court to respond to that. Well, there's always a tiresome debate over debates. But I mean, (laughs) at least there is going to be a debate. Pennsylvania voters deserve it. Um, uh, let me ask you, Francesca, we've seen a slew of, of people lying about the 2020 election nominated in Republican primaries this year. A CNN analysis found a majority of the Republican Senate nominees have rejected, raised doubts about or are taking steps to or took steps to overturn Joe Biden's victory. Uh, now, one of these nominees, uh, New Hampshire Senate nominee Don Bolduck, who won his primary on Tuesday in New Hampshire, he's changing his tune completely uh, about what he said happened in 2020. This is the new Bolduck. The election was not stolen. Was there fraud? Yes. President Biden is the legitimate president of this country. Obviously, now he's trying to tack towards the center and win over independence, or which is the biggest party in New Hampshire is the independence, um, biggest affiliation. Um, is it going to work? This is a broader theme that we've seen with Republican candidates who tacked to the right when they wanted the former president Donald Trump's support in their primaries. And now they're heading into general elections um, in in many of these states that are either leaning towards their Democratic opponent or solidly Democrat in some of these states or a toss up still uh, really trying to put out views that they think will attract, like you said, the center more independent voters, Jake. And, And it's not in one single race. And that is what has GOP strategists nervous at this point. Uh, heading into the the midterm elections. This isn't a pivot, though. We talk about pivots and campaigns. This is a reversal. Yeah. A complete and total reversal for what particular reason? The The primary's over. It's a swing state. That's the reason. I mean, it's so simple. I mean, he he wants... Look, this is a swing state. You need to get independent voters and Democrats to win as a Republican in New Hampshire, just as you do in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I think these guys are discovering they just can't pander to to a base... 
and, and win a general election. It's very simple. It's very basic math. And meanwhile, Democrats feel really buoyed by the issue of abortion rights. Maggie Hassan in that race has been campaigning really hard on that issue. It's something my colleagues and I wrote about this week, really leaning into that and also talking about the 15-week abortion ban that Lindsey Graham has now introduced in the Senate and using that to say that Republicans will try to pass an abortion ban if they take back the Senate. It's disingenuous, and it is troubling to think that these people will potentially be in office and passing laws. If they are disingenuous as candidates, they will be disingenuous as politicians. That's never happened. Right. <laughs> but that's why people are so frustrated with politics in Washington, D.C., and I hope the voters see through it. So, um, Gloria, CNN got a preview of this explosive new book from veteran uh, journalists uh, Susan Glasser and Peter Baker uh, about Trump's presidency. The book claims that the former president's national security team, including Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman uh, General Mark Milley, feared that Trump would ignite a conflict with Iran in the final days of his presidency. Quote, one administration official told Trump before the 2020 election that if he lost, he should strike Iran's nuclear program, the authors report. Quote, Milley at the time told his staff it was a what the F are these guys talking about moment. They write, now it seemed frighteningly possible. What do you make of this? I can't understand, reading all these books, reading all these stories, why these people, and, and, and this book says they considered it, didn't all get together and stand up there and tell the public what was going on and quit. I know the rationale was you have to have the guardrails. We have to be there to be the guardrails for the American public. But when this kind of stuff is going on at a certain point... Don't you owe it to the public to say something? And uh, Congressman Baker and Glasser also report that Trump once abruptly phoned Jordan's King Abdullah II to inform him he was, quote, going to give you the West Bank, which is, of course, not his to give, prompting the monarch to tell a friend he thought he was having a heart attack, quote, I couldn't breathe, I was bent, doubled over. Um, Is this more evidence that Trump isn't fit to serve, in your view, or what? Yeah, yeah, well, look, I I met the king. I, I, I can imagine his reaction. That said... We knew that Donald Trump had serious issues from the moment, from the moment of crowd size to the travel ban. I sat in a meeting with then Speaker Ryan. I said, who is going to conduct the intervention? Who's going to stage the intervention down at the White House? This is crazy. This was in week two. And nobody, <laughs> no, and, and, and here we are. We've just had a series of these types of events right. for years. Then January 6th was the culmination of it all. And it's only gotten worse. Yeah, and to your credit, Congressman, you were saying it publicly back then while you were in office. Thanks one and all for being here. Appreciate it. Coming up, a woman killed her alleged rapist. And now, believe it or not, this woman has been ordered to pay his family $150,000. And she's not alone. Stay with us. In our national lead, imagine having to pay tens of thousands of dollars to the family of someone who repeatedly raped you. That's what's happening in Iowa for one teenage sex trafficking victim. 17-year-old Piper Lewis, who killed her alleged rapist when she was 15 years old, is now being ordered to pay his family $150,000 in restitution as well as serving five years probation. Iowa law requires the court to sentence offenders to pay at least that amount if they kill someone regardless of the circumstances. A GoFundMe campaign set up by one of Lewis's former teachers is almost at $400,000. CNN's Lucy Kafanoff brings us the details, and we want to warn you, some of this information is rather disturbing. 
outrage is growing in the case of an Iowa teen sentenced to five years probation for killing her alleged rapist, ordered to pay the man's family $150,000. The court is cognizant that you and, quite frankly, your supporters may be frustrated, even angry with the imposition of the $150,000 in restitution to Mr. Brooks's estate. Piper Lewis was just 15 years old when she stabbed 37-year-old Zachary Brooks to death inside his Des Moines apartment in 2020, where she says he raped her multiple times. Yeah, I wish the events that took place on June 1st, 2020 never occurred. But to say there's only one victim to this story is absurd. Piper was being used for money or drugs by adults. In her plea agreement, Lewis laid out the series of events that led to the killing, saying she was trafficked by an older man who forced her to have sex with other men for money, including Brooks. She described being assaulted repeatedly, including while being unconscious, stating, I suddenly realized that Mr. Brooks had raped me yet again and was overcome with rage. Lewis was facing up to 20 years in prison after pleading guilty to voluntary manslaughter and willful injury. The judge deferred those sentences on Tuesday, meaning her guilty plea could be expunged if she completes five years probation at a residential correctional facility. So this is the second chance that you've asked for. You don't get a third. Understand that? Yes, I do. The next five years of your life will be full of rules that you will disagree with. I'm sure of it. The judge said the restitution was mandatory under Iowa law. This court has no discretion but to impose the $150,000 in restitution payable uh, to Mr. Brooks's estate. I don't think that justice was served. I think that justice would have not seen Piper Lewis spend any time behind bars. Rights advocates point to numerous examples of victims of sexual abuse and trafficking facing punishment rather than protection. Women of color who've experienced sexual violence, domestic violence, trafficking, any kind of harm, who act in self-defense against their the people who harmed them, have not been treated well by our legal system historically. That means I'm going to die here. Mm-hmm. Sarah Cruzan was sentenced to life without parole as a teenager for killing a man who sexually abused and trafficked her in 1994, pardoned by California's governor this July. State of Wisconsin versus Crystal Kaiser. In Wisconsin, Crystal Kaiser is facing a life sentence for killing the man she said forced her into trafficking when she was just 16. In Tennessee, Centoya Brown was sentenced to life in prison for killing a man she claims paid to rape her when she was a 16-year-old trafficking victim. She was eventually granted clemency and released in 2019 after 15 years behind bars. You know, it's just a story that has unfortunately become all too familiar. Reacting to Lewis's sentence in an interview with PBS NewsHour. She was a victim in this situation. Not only is she going to have to serve time in a facility, but over the next five years, anything that she does can trigger her having to serve a 20-year sentence. Um, So she's not truly free. And then there's a fact that she was ordered to... And here's the thing, Jake, Piper Lewis avoids prison for now, but this is a victim of severe abuse. And like so many of the vulnerable teenagers in her situation, she needs support in healing her trauma and not punitive measures. Rights activists that I spoke to say the justice system should be punishing child sex traffickers rather than their victims. Jake? Lucy Kavanaugh, thanks so much. Coming up, the British monarchy coming face to face with its brutal past, including the head of a slain tribal chief and a 500 carat diamond. Stay with us. 
Now our world lead, the Queen's death has reignited anger over Britain's colonial cruelty. In Kenya, leaders of the Nandi tribe are hoping that King Charles III will agree to return the head of their beloved anti-colonial leader. The severed head was apparently shipped to England as a war trophy after the tribal leader had been invited to a meeting with the British and then killed by a British officer in that meeting in 1905. CNN's David McKenzie is in Johannesburg. David, is it clear if this head remains in British hands? Well, that's certainly what the Nandi elders are saying, and it uh, speaks to the pain and suffering so many generations after this incident when the Nandi were uh, fighting against the building of a railway through their ancestral land in Kenya in the turn of the last century, uh, their leader went to negotiate a peace, or so he thought, with a British officer, was murdered by the British military, and they say his head taken to England as a war trophy. Uh, and the death of the Queen has resurfaced a lot of this pain and anguish and the very real generational impact of the brutality of British colonialism. Uh, you recall, uh, Jake, uh, about 10 years ago, there was a group of Kenyans who uh, were suffering from, uh, the, in the 1950s, actually the very year that the Queen became Queen, uh, was the start of the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya. Many of them, hundreds and thousands, in fact, were placed in internment camps, tortured. Some 10 years ago, we reported on how they successfully uh, got money, more than $20 million from the British government, an apology of sorts. But many uh, feel that the ongoing legacy of colonialism hasn't been dealt with. We spoke to a prominent lawyer who helped defend those Mau Mau uh, liberation uh, heroes. Here's what he had to say about the impact of colonialism. The dehumanization of the Kenyan people or the black people, because the unspoken word was that colonialism treated Africans in Kenya as beings resembling human beings, but subhuman, something that, and they treated them as such. That dehumanization is what I would plead with the British government, now His Majesty's government, to accept and atone. Well, these issues are very much alive. Just a few weeks ago, Jake, another group of Kenyans are suing uh, now the British government in a European court for what they say is being, uh, were the atrocities of them being pushed off their land. Jake? All right, David McKenzie in South Africa, thank you so much for that report. Coming up, another tennis superstar taking a bow and leaving. Grand Slam competition. Stay with us. In our sports lead today, another all-time great tennis player taking a significant step back in their professional career. 20-time Grand Slam champion Roger Federer, who's 41 years old, says he's retiring from the ATP Tour and Grand Slams once he's done competing in the Laver Cup next week in London. But he will continue to play tennis in the future. The tennis star posted his announcement on Twitter, citing injuries and surgeries that ultimately led to his decision. I am 41 years old. I've played more than 1,500 matches over 24 years. Tennis has treated me more generously than I ever would have dreamt, and now I must recognize when it is time to end my competitive career. Federer thanked his family, his competitors, and fans for supporting his hugely successful career. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcast just sitting there like a ripe apple. 
Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.